The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Are you ready to try something new? Then grasses and sedges could be your next adventure. You will find the opportunities for creating a rich, layered, interesting garden that serves more than an ornamental function. Developing the whole ecological package. Improving the soil and a more aesthetically functioning garden are in your future. We all need better solutions for suppressing weeds and gardening under trees. This is episode 76, Growing and Understanding Grasses and Sedges with Shannon Curry. Shannon is a horticultural educator and consultant with Azale Native Plants. She began her work life as a social scientist and then changed her career pursuit to horticulture at North Carolina State University. Shannon joined Hoffman Nursery, a wholesale grower specializing in grasses, sedges, and other graminoids. She has shared her advanced knowledge of graminoids in articles published nationally, and you will often find her speaking across the country to professional organizations, community groups, and at public gardens. Shannon currently serves on the Perennial Plant Association's Board of Directors and is on the North Carolina Plant Conservation Scientific Committee. She was honored in 2020 with the Libby Wilder Award from the North Carolina Nursery and Landscape Association. In 2022, Shannon joined Isel Native Plants to expand their education and outreach efforts. Izell's unique sales model brings native plant wholesale grower inventories directly to the end consumer. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Shannon, what is the difference between ornamental grass and turf grass? That's a great question because when people hear the word grass, they often think of turf grass. Turf grass really is a whole separate category within horticulture, and it's really grasses that are grown to be mowed, to be played upon, walked upon, really very functional as turf, as most people think about it. What we call ornamental grasses, and have been called that for a long time in the horticultural trade, are ones that have traditionally been used more for aesthetic reasons. They're typically taller. You don't typically mow them. You use them as a design element, as an accent or in big sweeps. Folks who grow them and design with them use them in very different ways, and they're treated in very different ways than turf grass. Do sedges fit into the ornamental grass category? Yes, they are. They're what botanists call graminoids, graminae being the old word for the family that includes true grasses. Sedges are grass-like plants. They are in a different family than true grasses. They all get lumped together in the category of ornamental grasses when we're talking about horticultural trade or in the green industry or in landscape design. Most people think of those all as one category of ornamental grasses. Another different type of ornamental grass would be like liriops and mondo grasses. How does that fit in? Well, it depends on who you ask. What I grew up calling monkey grass and ophiopogon, those are actually both in the lily family. Some nurseries and garden centers, you'll see both those kinds of plants lumped in with ornamental grasses. I worked for a number of years at Hoffman Nursery, which is a wholesale grower of ornamental and native grasses. We did not grow what I call Ariope or Ophiopogon. We did not grow those, but there are a number of other nurseries that would put that in the ornamental grass category. Those are ones I have experience with as a gardener, but not professionally as as much. Do you think ornamental grasses is really the best name for a plant that goes beyond a strong aesthetic function to possibly a stronger ecological function? I think that's a great point. 
I have stopped using the term ornamental grasses for that very reason, because it puts that emphasis on ornamental and how they look. What I think is so wonderful about grasses is they have that package and they have a lot of ecological value as well. They're really functional in the landscape. I think that's one of the reasons they've grown in popularity so much over the past decades is because they bring so much to the table when it comes to function in the landscape. I sort of feel like when we say ornamental grasses, that makes them sound like that's the only reason we put them in a landscape. And that's just so far from the truth. Here's your big chance. You get the chance to rename a whole category. So today, <laughs> how would you classify or rename ornamental grasses? Ooh, you know, I call them just grasses and grass-like plants. Okay. No, that's not very sexy. I should probably think of a much better term for that. Uh. Marketing term, if you will, as compared to turf grass. I think folks who are in the turf grass industry don't talk about it as grass. They talk about it as turf grass. Mm -hmm. I think for us putting them in the category with other perennials, and so talking about grasses and grass-like plants goes a long way. For me, immediately conjures those different ways of using and thinking about what we have called ornamental grass. I'll come up with a better one down the road. You have to check back in with that one. Okay. <laughs> yeah, hurry up before somebody else beats you to it. I know it. Well, that's okay. If they've got a good one, I'll take it. Yeah. We see a need here, so you need to fill it. <laughs> exactly. I know that in the turf grass world, there's our warm season and cool season grasses. And does that hold true in the ornamental grass or the grass world? It does. It's a really important distinction. A distinction that I don't think gets talked about very much when you're outside of the turf grass industry or the application of that. It is really important. And it's one of the aspects of these plants that really set them apart. That designation of cool versus warm is based on primarily the photosynthetic process that those plants use. Warm season grasses and warm season plants have a photosynthetic process that sort of overlays the same one that cool season plants do. I can talk more about the specifics of that. What cool versus warm season really has to do with their growth cycle over the seasons, when they're at their best, when they're as a plant most efficient with water, nutrients, and resources, it affects how you grow them. It affects when you might transplant them or divide them. It affects when those plants are at their best both functionally and aesthetically. It's a really important distinction. Is there a difference between how sedges and grasses function in the garden? There is. And that's one thing to note about sedges, which I'd mentioned earlier, they're in a different family. So they're in the Cyperaceae family. Most of the time when we're talking about sedges, especially in horticulture, gardening, we usually mean carex or carex, depending on where you learn that genus, C-A-R-E-X, carex. They are all cool season growers. Most of the grasses that are offered that you can buy in a garden center that people use, most of those are warm season plants. Warm season plants really function best when the soil and the air temperatures are higher. Early in the season, they're spending their time forming roots underground. So it's all happening below the soil line. They're growing roots early in the season. As the soil and air temperatures warm up, so we're talking about soil temperatures in the 70s and air temperatures in the 80s. So really, once summer starts going, those warmer temperatures mean they can photosynthesize more efficiently. They also are better at using sunlight and water and nutrients. They're more efficient. They can use more like 70% of the sunlight, whereas cool season plants only can utilize about 15% or so. It's a really big difference. Those warm season grasses are growing like gangbusters in those warm summer months. They're soaking up all that sunlight, growing profusely. They put on a lot of biomass. That's why the grasses that you typically see can grow quite large. Sugarcane, for example, is a grass, and that sucker can get up 15, 20 feet tall. You get some really big plants. Warm season grasses are ones that really are sun loving typically. They love the heat. They grow very well. That is an adaptation that happened millions of years ago in response really to planetary and global changes that were happening at the time. Most of the plants worldwide, especially in temperate climates, are actually cool season. That's kind of the norm, believe it or not, is really cool season plants. Those do best at cooler temperatures. They have a different photosynthetic process that does really well at cooler temperatures, like when we're in the 60s and the 70s. 
we're talking about plants that grow really well early in the season. They may start growing late winter, early spring, especially here in the southeast. They're fresh and bright looking early in the spring. They grow a lot spring, early summer. As the temperatures start to climb and it gets really hot, especially nighttime temperatures are hotter, they slow down. In fact, there's some cool season plants. We know them. a lot of our spring ephemerals go almost completely dormant as the summer heats up. Sedges are some of the cool season grasses are growing the most in spring. They're going to slow down, not actively growing as much in the summer. And then they actually get a flush of growth late in the season. If you think about that, a cool season plant is also going to bloom early in the season. They've been storing up energy over the wintertime. A lot of our cool season plants are spring bloomers. You want to be dividing them in the spring when they're actively growing and let them get established before they go into summertime and they're slowing down. You can also do that in the fall, thinking about just when those plants are actively growing, spring and fall. Contrast that with warm season plants, warm season grasses in particular, they're actively growing in the summer and in late spring. So that's when you want to divide them. You can do that early spring and summer, or you can wait till fall and do that then, but you want to do it before they start to go dormant. There's sort of that difference, but they're really actively growing in the summer months. It applies to so many different areas of thinking about growing and managing grasses and sedges may be helpful to just start with that, thinking about when they're actively growing. Cool season, it's going to be spring and fall. Warm season grasses, it's going to be primarily in the warm summer months. How are grasses and sedges different from each other? First of all, they're in different plant families. They are both grass-like plants. For most folks, they look very similar aesthetically. They can serve a lot of the same aesthetic functions. A lot of the grasses that we work with, especially in the southeast, are warm season plants and all the sedges are cool season. So that's one distinctive difference. Grasses are interesting to me because they have the widest distribution of all the flowering plant families in the world. You find grasses in almost any ecosystem out there. Many of our food crops like corn, rice, wheat, those are all grasses, which is kind of cool. Bamboo is a grass. They are found throughout the world. Sedges, interestingly enough, are also really widespread. So I think 2,000 species of carex found throughout the world. It's amazing. Interestingly, for a genus that's that big, you'd expect some of them to be woody plants, some to be vines, some to be perennials and annuals. All of the sedges, all of the carex are actually herbaceous perennials. That's a cool trivia question, by the way. Cocktail party talk right there. That'll rivet the room. Yeah. Or maybe work it into conversation. They're all herbaceous perennials. Grasses and sedges can often be used in similar ways. One of the distinctions that really helps me to think about them is a lot of grasses are really happiest in full sun, especially the grasses that most of us are going to be able to buy in a garden center or find out there. Typically are for full sun. Not all, but most of them are. Sedges, by contrast, what's available in the trade is often for shady conditions. That's where sedges have gotten so much more popular because they do well in partial shade or almost even fairly dense shade. They're ones you might think about using even in the same way you might a grass, but you would do it in shady conditions. So all of a sudden it opens up all these applications for sedges in those shady or mixed partial shade conditions, those spots that are really tough when you can't put a full sun plant there. Or even like turf grass, too. I've seen so many people try to grow turf grass under trees, and I think they're just wasting their money most of the time. Well, it's for sure. You've got to have full sun for turf grass species. That's where I think sedges really shine. There's some grasses that'll work for this application, but if you're talking about something as an alternative to turf grass in shady conditions, sedges are a really good alternative. The nursery I worked for for a long time was Hoffman Nursery, and they specialize in grasses and what we used to call ornamental grasses and native grasses. Also grow a lot of sedges. Where we saw enormous increases in popularity was using sedges in shady conditions, often using them almost as that ground cover layer. Instead of trying to grow turf grass where you've got lots of trees or in an older established neighborhood where you've got a lot of trees in your garden, you can't dig up huge swaths of underneath established trees or you can't grow turf grass under those 
sedges offer a really great alternative to that. And the cool part is you can even mow them two or three times a year. You don't have to mow them like you do turf grass every week in the summer or every two weeks when it's cooler weather. Sedges, you can mow back, mow them high, like three to even eight inches, depends on what you can tolerate. You can get that more uniform manicured look by mowing them back once a month or even two or three times a season. During the summer, they're not going to grow very much. You really don't have to mow very often. It's actually what I think of as kind of low resource gardening. They don't take a lot of management or maintenance. You don't have to worry about mowing them a lot. They don't typically need fertilizer. Folks, if you want that really bright green turf grass, you've got to do a lot to manage that. I personally don't do that because the little bit of turf area I have, I mow what grows because I like to practice low resource gardening. For those shady areas where I want a manicured look, I can mow it back. Got sedges doing that work for me. Since we're talking about turf grass and sedges, I'm thinking my mind, is nut sedge a sedge or is that something totally different? Because I know people try to get rid of nut sedge or nut grassing. They do. I'll tell you, the hardest sell is talking to farmers about sedge mm-hmm. because they have spent many hours dealing with it. Nut sedge is the same genus. It is a carex, but it is one that obviously is super problematic. I mentioned earlier, it's a pretty widespread family. So you've got some very aggressive spreaders, some aggressive reseeders. That's why it's really important for nurseries that are growing sedges to evaluate that aspect of them, to be looking at ones that are not super aggressive or that spread in ways that are manageable. The sedges that you'll find in this tray, there are some that will spread. They spread by seed. Some of the ones that are available are native to North America. There's some really nice ones that are native to the Southeast as well. Cherokee sedge is one, rosy sedge, Texas sedge. There's some what I would call gentle spreaders that will spread, but none of the ones that you're going to find in the horticultural trade or at a garden center are anything like what nut sedge would be. And it has those nutlets. I mean, it is persnickety and really difficult to get rid of. Maybe we need a better common name. Oh, gosh, I got a lot of naming to do here, it seems like. We need a better name instead of sedge. Maybe we should be talking about Carex because a little less scary. There are some sedges that are a problem, and you want to make sure that you're picking one that isn't one of those aggressive spreaders. Like many, many plants available to us, choosing one that you understand and know about and for the right place really is what you've got to do as a gardener and as a steward is make a good choice. Yeah, you don't need to just go be emotional about the purchase and say, oh, beautiful bloom, let's buy it. You need to know what it's going to do for you in the long run. Exactly. I mentioned Cherokee sedge. It's, to me, one of the best for the Southeast. It's very adaptable. It's really attractive. It can be mowed. It's a great filler plant, and we can talk a little bit more about what that means and how you might use it. It will reseed. It will do so when it's happy. It can be a bully. It's nothing like nutsedge. It'll move around in the right place. That is a real plus. Think about a rain garden, for example. In a rain garden, you want something that is going to handle both wet and dry conditions. You want something that's going to hold in soil and not wash away. You want a plant that will fill in that space that will outcompete weeds. Something like a Cherokee sedge, or there's another called Creek sedge, Carex amphibola, are spreaders and ones that hold their own, but they won't take over the world and they can be controlled fairly easily. We've got that balance. Is this the right plant for this application? I put Cherokee sedge in a nice little bed. I was trying it out as kind of an underplanting, one to fill in space between my other bigger perennials. It just got to be too much of a bully. It was taking up too much space. It was reseeding and I edited it out. That's what you have to think about is editing and choosing and and trying it out. That's how I think about these, but using them in the right spot makes a big difference. Is it easy to edit? It is. I had an established clump that took a little bit of muscle to dig out, have to pluck out seedlings. That one's one of the tougher ones to edit out. Creek sedge I mentioned, easy to pull out, dig up. It's not a big one. There's some that are really easy to do, especially some of the clumpers. Some of the sedges are ones that might form a clump and don't move out very much. They're not rhizomatous, in other words. They're not going to spread, sends out those runners, those rhizomes. There are a few sedges that do that, so those you might want to be more cautious about using. Make sure it's in the right spot. Those clumpers are even easier to edit out. 
Okay, well, let's kind of flip the script here and say, all right, we're going to dig it and we want to split it. Mm-hmm. Do you just take a hatchet and cut it or your shovel and cut it in half or thirds? Is that the way to do it and then replant it? You do. With sedges, they're a little bit more sensitive than grasses are that dividing and doing it at the right time of year is kind of important. Dividing them when they're actively growing either spring or fall. So you don't want to do it when the weather's hot because they're not going to grow very well when you try to transplant them. A heavy grower like Cherokee sedge, sure enough, you get in there with even a hand axe or a knife and just cut them up. Ones that are less fibrous, that are smaller, usually you can take a soil knife to do that, something that's fairly gentle, but you can pry some of these apart. You want to divide it, make sure you've got several nodes, several growth points right at the soil line to give it plenty of spots that it can grow from and produce more roots and shoots from that spot. Grasses, most of the time you can do it with a pretty heavy implement. You can do it with an axe or you can do it with a soil knife depending on the grasses. Grasses are tougher. They can handle a little bit rougher divisions. You can usually just chop up or even pull apart pretty easily. And that you want to do again when they're actively growing. I will say, though, to go off slight tangent, that there are a number of grasses, especially those warm season grasses, are so tough you can do it in winter. Stick them back in there and they'll grow. There are a few of those like switchgrass, the panicums. You can divide those just about any time and they're going to be okay. There are some that are tough, so it kind of depends on which ones you're looking at. One of the pluses of grasses and sedges, but grasses especially have a really fibrous branching root system, which gives them a lot of really good advantages when it comes to ecological value because they actually help improve the soil. That root system gets down in the soil, opens up pore space, which allows water to infiltrate, space for nutrients to get in there. So that fibrous root system is really nice for holding soil. If you dig it up, you want to divide it. It's going to be holding on to that. You can dig it up and shake it out. You can even let it dry out just a little bit. Now, you don't want to let it get bone dry. I don't mean that. You want to protect those roots from completely drying out. Because they're so good at holding in soil, you either want to soak them and get the soil off, and then you can divide, or you can also let them dry just a little bit so that you can kind of bang them a little bit, if you will, gently banging against the side of a bucket or something, wheelbarrow, and get that soil off, and then you can more easily divide them. You're taking the soil off to make it easier to divide, or is that something that makes you more successful if you do that? It's both, it turns out. I do it because I find it easier to divide because then you can pull the crown apart. It's just physically easier to do. One of the coolest things I have done lately, and I've been very successful with it, and I learned, was I have now bare root all of my perennials and all of my woody plants, if I can, before I plant them. Why do you do that? One of the reasons to do that is that often, especially if you're getting container-grown plants, the medium that they're going in is very different than most of what you're planting in in a garden. When you're moving a plant from one kind of medium to another, bare rooting them will help them adapt better to the new medium. If we're talking about growing from one garden spot to another, it's probably less of a deal because you're taking that native soil, if you will, and moving it to another spot. I find it easier and it feels to me like I've been more successful even within the same garden bare rooting because I can place it more easily. I dig the hole. I create a little pyramid or just little roost for those roots to lay out on. Then I can fill back in. Now, is it more work overall, probably, than just digging something up and sticking it in another hole? I find that it helps me place that plant better when I do that. For container-grown perennials, especially in grasses, I find that they have done really, really well when I use that methodology. You're breaking up that circular growth pattern of the roots, and if they've been in the container a little too long, you're able to break it up and make it spread out into that native soil. You're eliminating the interfaces between that really nice optimum soil that you have in the nursery versus maybe not so great soil that you're planting it in. That's true. And I think you and I talked about it. I'm planting a lot of clayey soil. I've amended it in some places, especially if you think about taking a plant from a container that's grown typically in something that is engineered to drain very easily. What can happen if you take a plant that's been grown in that container and that soil that drains well and you stick it into especially a clayey soil, you're creating a bathtub basically, or that root ball is going to dry out. What happens when you're planting, you need to water the root ball. If you can then bare root it and put it into this native soil, water it, it's going to retain that water better and not drain so much. You've got to balance that with poorly draining soil. 
that container that's made to drain well right there, you've got just a little bitty something that's going to dry out really quickly because that's what it's designed to do. That's part of the reason I bear root, but it also just makes it easier to divide. We see all these beautiful Zone 5 dream gardens where grasses and sedges are interplanted with other perennials. Then we hit the realities of the southeastern United States in Zone 8. What is the solution? I think the solution is translating the principles that they've been using to the plant palette we have here in the southeast. And we know that there are some challenges that we have here that just are not the same as Zone 5. We have winter weeds. We have weeds all year long. We have humidity and heat load that puts disease pressure on us. Some of the plants that are getting used in those beautiful gardens just don't do well for us. So I think finding, translating the plants and the ways that they are making choices about those plants to something that works for us is going to be key. That, unfortunately, takes a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience to do. And that's why I think we've got to try it more and more. I can tell you just personally in my garden, I'm trying some of those ideas out. One of those is really looking at it as a plant community and having layers within that. So you have a ground cover layer that's performing certain functions. You've got a middle layer that adds seasonality and color and helps that planting read as something that's intentional and beautiful and that people will respond to. And then you might have a structural layer that gives it those bones, if you will, in trees, taller perennials and shrubs, that kind of thing. So taking those ideas of those layers, I'm trying it in my home garden. I've got layers and I've put grasses and sedges, trying them as that ground plane layer. I'm gardening in a lot of clay. So I found that there's some sedges that just don't do well in that situation, but there's some that are doing okay and are my filler plants. So there's a creek sedge, which I've mentioned earlier, that adapts to both wet and dry conditions. In my clayey soil, it's doing just fine. It reseeds gently, but not aggressively. And if I had really loose, beautiful soils, my guess is that thing would be going to town and really reseeding quite a bit more. What I'm finding is some plants that might work, for example, in zone five or work up in the mid-Atlantic, I've got to find a different plant to take the place of that. Because at this time of year, late summer, disease is just eating up stuff that might work for those folks. Grasses and sedges, figuring out the ones that will adapt well to the heat load, the humid conditions, and that layering of plants. You mentioned, Craig, too, that we see these beautiful layered plantings. And one of the key factors in that is planting very densely. There are a bunch of reasons that that works well is it helps outcompete weeds. Mulch has a lot of great functions, but over time, it does not prevent weeds unless you keep reapplying it. We've all had to weed mulch. So the idea is that we're outcompeting the weeds by planting much more densely. It fills in more quickly. That's part of that foundational layer of those plantings. For us in the southeast, in warmer climates, you might suppress weed competition, but then you've got to worry about air circulation and disease pressure. That's where finding those plants that are either resistant or come from environments where they don't have a lot of air circulation. It's finding the right plant palette, and that is going to take some time. Going into it with your eyes wide open with an experimental spirit, especially for home gardeners, is going to be part of it. I have killed some things, I'll be honest. And that was part of the learning curve on this. I do think it's the way forward for a lot of gardens, but I think we have to acknowledge that it's going to be a little bit tougher. There are folks working on this. There are people doing these plantings, trying them out. The good news is because it's planting style that has so many benefits, ecologically, aesthetically, overall functionally, it's worth our trying to figure out how to make it work. So if you want to do this, you would think it's better to start on a small scale unless you're really heavily amending the soils or creating soils for them. That's true. I'd start small. I'd figure it out. The other way to go is there are some folks doing some research on this. There are people out there. So if you can find some examples of that, you could go a little bit bigger. Start small. Take your time with it. I think, too, if you're someone who's relatively experienced at gardening, especially with some of these perennials, we've got the ability to translate it. For example, there's the Lurie Garden in Chicago is kind of this classic example of that, or the High Line in New York City. They publish their plant lists online. Can you think about what that plant is doing in that planting there? Is there an equivalent that you know as a gardener that might make that same swap out? 
there may be a sedge that is in the Lurie Garden in Chicago that really does best in their climate. Finding a sedge like the Creek Sedge or the Cherokee Sedge I mentioned, there's some sedges that can handle those conditions here in the southeast and translate. Small scale, that's a good place to start. What makes grasses and sedges different from other perennials? Oh, great question. They share so much with perennials, but I think they have a unique set of aesthetic qualities that, to me, set them apart. Those, and there are a couple of other functional issues, really visually, the design elements that they bring to the party, if you will, are what make them unique. Putting our design hats on, what are the visual elements that grasses bring? One of those that really stands out to me is translucence. All the grasses have these inflorescences that really capture the light and glow. The pink muley grass blooming in the fall, they capture light in a way that's really beautiful. So that translucence is one aspect. Another one is as a design element, thinking about linearity. They form lines. If you think about them in a landscape compared to broader leaves or even small leaves, grasses are linear. The foliage is linear. That, as a visual texture against other plants, offers a lot of contrast. There are other perennials that have that, but again, we're thinking about the whole package here. The other is texture, so not just linearity, literally the visual texture. So grasses are very fine textured, and contrasting those with broadleaf plant really brings a visual element that allows you to combine foliage in ways that's really interesting and varies across the seasons. Grasses, because they're often upright and linear, they can be used to create emphasis in the landscape. So you're thinking about compositions and you've got a planting. Your grass can literally be an exclamation point if you've got a tall, upright grass or you've got a sweep of grasses underplanting some other perennials or other shrubs. They can help establish a rhythm to the landscape. So you use them as an accent throughout and that can tie a planting together in ways that not many perennials can do. Under planting that ground cover layer can actually unify a planting visually. They provide an element that becomes the background and lets other plants shine. I think of them sometimes that that ground cover layer as the backup singers of the plant world. They're not the stars of the show. They're allowing the melody to sing and tying it together. That ability to sort of create a rhythm, to unify, is really part of that visual aesthetic. Their seasonality is pretty strong compared to other perennials. Sedges often are bright and fresh looking early in the season, but grasses, once they start growing in the summer, they change over time. They get different colors. They bloom in the fall. Unlike a lot of perennials that will sort of melt once the frost comes or the freeze comes, grasses tend to keep their shape. During the winter, grasses really shine, or even fall, you just think about most of them bloom in the fall. Even when they're dormant, you have a structure there in the landscape that provides movement and sound. They rustle during the winter. One of the most relaxing things to me is to go into a field, especially in winter, and you just hear the wind becomes something you can hear when the grasses rustle and they move around. This seasonality that what you hear, what you see, and the colors of fall, that package to me is what really sets them apart from other perennials. I think we lose a lot of value because they get cut back too early and we don't get that winter enjoyment. Oh, it's the truth. I think we get so caught up in the idea of tidying up, cleaning up, and cutting back. We let it sit there and we realize how beautiful it can be in the wintertime. It is something that's happening. What we're learning is that plants that look dead can actually have some real beauty to them. Sure, they're fully dormant. The cool thing is grasses to me have interesting seed heads and they provide some structure in the landscape. If you think about it, we're sort of obsessed sometimes with evergreens. To me, grasses in the wintertime provide that contrast. They're different shades of brown. They're copper. They're deep earthy browns and light toasty browns and cinnamons. That against evergreen plants is something that brings life in a season of dormancy. The other thing, if you think about it ecologically too, grasses provide shelter and nesting material for wildlife. There are native bees that will hide in the hollow stems of grasses. They will get down in the crown of that. There are birds that rely on that foliage in the wintertime for shelter and cover. Cutting back grasses, we're removing habitat for some of those creatures that we love and want to support and are part of that functioning ecological plant community. We think about pollinators. Pollinator gardens are really popular. 
You've got to have grasses in a pollinator garden. They provide shelter for those creatures. Sedges actually provide some pollen for our pollinators out there. They're grasses that are host plants for butterflies. If we cut them back, we're losing so much that makes our garden functional and valuable. When would you want to cut them back if you ever do? And kind of touch on the maintenance side of them. I would leave them till late in the season. If you are gardening for wildlife, and I hope that you are, you want to leave them as late as you possibly can. If you're going to cut them back, you want to do it before the new growth is emerging. Cut them high enough that you don't get those new growth tips coming up. You can wait till you see new growth emerging and then cut them back. You can cut them high if you want to wait a little bit later. If you want to leave them even longer for wildlife support, what I might suggest is you cut maybe half of them back and leave the others. Wait till later or don't cut them back at all. Late winter before or as that new growth is emerging is a great time for grasses. In the southeast, you can wait till March, April to do that. Some of those warm season grasses are breaking dormancy fairly late in the season. It can be April. For sedges, as we talked about earlier, they are cool season growers. Some of them may start growing in January or February even. So you want to do those late winter for the most part. The interesting thing about sedges is that because they are getting that flush of growth early in the season in spring, they're going to slow down in summer, and they may get a second flush of growth in the fall. If you are someone who wants to be very tidy, highly manicured garden, or you feel like the sedges are looking a little bit tired late in the summer because of the heat, you can actually cut them back in late summer get a flush of growth in the fall, which is why if you're thinking about from a design standpoint, you don't want to put sedges right up front. You want to put them somewhere where in the middle of the summer or late summer, recognize they're going to not look as good then. So maybe they're underplanting something that's more of a summer bloomer. And then as those summer bloomers die back, you might cut back your sedges and let them freshen up in the fall. Does that kind of answer the question about cutting back? Sort of it depends on your goal. It depends. Yeah, it really does. That's the beginning of every horticulture answer. I know. Don't you hate that? It's like there's not a clear answer. It's a regular cycle. If you want one answer, it's sedges, late winter, grasses, early to mid-spring. Was there any other maintenance aspect or anything else we want to talk about? Grasses and sedges are relative to a lot of other plants and perennials are relatively low maintenance. There's not much to them. Grasses and sedges both, you can tell, they're getting to a point where they need to be divided. Sometimes that center portion will start to die out. Not all of them do that. Some of them will do that, and that's where you want to go ahead and think about dividing them long term. You can do that every few years. There's some grasses that you almost never going to need to divide, but you really want to be guided by what's happening in the center of that plant. In terms of planting and managing them over time, when you plant a grass and a sedge too, one thing you want to be careful about is letting the crown of that plant get air circulation. You don't want to bury it below the soil line. That's really important. There are some exceptions when you're talking about grasses and sedges from wet plant communities. They're fine with this. Most of the grasses people are going to be planting are typically going to be ones that appreciate having that crown at or just above the soil line. So you don't want to bury it. You want to make sure that you're letting that crown get some air circulation in it. Plant densely so that you don't need a lot of mulch long term. When you first plant, you can mulch around them. I suggest that you mulch first and then plant into that. Just have a little bit of clearance around the crown of that plant so that you don't smother it. The great thing about a lot of the grasses and sedges is you really don't need to fertilize them at planting. You can do that to get them established, to grow some roots, but long term, grasses and sedges really don't need supplemental fertilization. Think of them as low resource plants for the garden because they actually do quite well without that supplemental fertilization, that supplemental nutrients. I say the same thing about irrigation. You can get them established that first year. You don't want them to dry out completely, but they're not going to need a lot of supplemental irrigation. After they're established, grasses, for the most part, don't need a lot of extra irrigation. Here's my big caveat. A lot of our native species of grasses that are in the trade, switch grasses, the panicums, the little blue stems, the schizocariums, prairie drop seeds, parabolus, some of the andropogons, the broom sedges, the prairie grasses like sorghastrum. These are all warm season North American native grasses. They are very efficient, as we mentioned earlier and talked about warm season grasses. They actually do best in poorer soils and low nutrient soils with not a lot of supplemental irrigation because they have evolved so efficiently. If you give them all those things, if you put them in rich soils, give them everything they want, lots of water, lots of nutrients, lots of sunlight, 
they're going to grow like crazy because they're very efficient, but they will flop. They will put on a lot of growth that's weak and lax. You'll get just the opposite of what you want. They're going to flop and not look good. For them to stay relatively upright, you actually want to grow them what I'd call lean. You don't want to baby them. These are grasses I'd put in a tough spot and let them grow. They're good for the devil's trip, you know, between the sidewalk and the street. They're ones that if you've got a gravelly, rocky soils, put some of those native grasses in there. Little blue stem is one of those exceptions that needs good drainage and you want to check on those. That's one of the real strengths of grasses and sedges is they don't take a lot of input, if you will, resources to do well in a typical garden. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, and growing a garden or landscape? I wish they would plant more plants. I have to qualify because, yes, I used to work for a nursery, so that was some incentive for that. The reason I say that is because I think people often will plant plants in this kind of ocean of mulch, if you will. We'll put them in their own little boxes and we don't have them touching each other. Get that we need space for them to get bigger. So you want to plan for that because landscapes are dynamic and we want them to grow. I think we often plant them so far apart and not enough plants that they become high maintenance when they don't have to be from the beginning. If we would plant a little more densely or plant a living mulch or a ground cover, it doesn't have to be grasses or sedges. They're my favorite plants. Finding a ground cover, a plant to fill that space to me is such a better strategy for the life of that planting in that garden across ecology, across resource use, across labor. I love to weed as much as the next person for a little zen, but not all the time. That's what I think is planting more densely and really filling in those in-between spaces. What is a garden myth you'd love to smash today? Ooh, this one's a little esoteric, but I'd love to smash the myth that grasses aren't pollinator plants. Everybody talks about flowers and pollinator gardens, and we don't always recognize that grasses are pollinator plants too. They provide some shelter, but they also are hosts for certain butterflies, for native bees. They're plants that really ought to be part of the conversation about pollinators. What is your earliest garden memory? Oh, it was being in my parents' huge garden. I grew up in northwest Alabama. They planted a huge garden. I was out there picking rocks out of that thing and Bermuda grass out of it. Frankly, hated it. Came to horticulture as an adult later, and my mama still reminds me about how much I complained about that early gardening. (laughs) Why did you decide to pursue the horticultural profession? I took a very circuitous path to that. I started my work life. I loved what I was doing, except I couldn't see doing it the rest of my life. Meanwhile, I had really gotten into plants. I'd started being a home gardener. I had house plants and really, really enjoyed it. Thought, this is kind of cool. I'd like to learn some more. I took a night class in horticulture and was hooked. I realized this is something I feel passionately about. This is something I can imagine doing for the rest of my life. And that's what got me started. Have you found that there's an intersection between your previous profession and horticulture? Oh, absolutely. Yes. My training was in social psychology. It's not the kind of psychology most folks think of. It's not clinical where you're treating people. It's where you're studying how being in a social environment affects our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors. And so it's things like how people form attitudes and how people change their minds and think about and respond to other people being around them. I find that horticulture is so important to think about how we interact with each other and it affects our health and well-being. Talking to people about plants, hearing about plants from people and understanding how it makes them happy, what it does for them, how we think about helping people understand them better. Everything I learned from before feeds into that. I was a researcher before, so that research, those skills I learned in being a researcher helped me understand plants better and really feed into that. One of the great joys I have in horticulture is learning about the plants in ways that help me convey that to other people and think about how we can change attitudes and get more people to love plants and garden. It's a cool collision. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? It was really hard to think about one person. I will say This is kind of recent, the past five or six years. It's been the Perennial Plants Association. I can say that because it is made up of perennial professionals. There's this kind of collective of people where that has engaged me with so many people. It's the people breeding perennial plants. It's people growing them. And being a part of that group has changed the way I think about the industry and about perennials. 
I've learned so much in such a short amount of time. It has just opened up my eyes to all that's out there and all the plants out there that I don't know yet. That's been the cool part. What has been one of your most valuable garden mistakes? This is going to be a recent one, too. It's not understanding how to water container plants. We've been really droughty. I realized I was watering automatically and not really understanding that once you get soil dry, rehydrating it is really difficult. Led me into the cycle of just watering containers often and not really checking. My index finger has become my best tool in the last few years for understanding you got to check. It applies to, to watering in the landscape. We talked earlier about the root ball and bare rooting. That, for me, partly comes out of learning how to water and having killed some important plants by not understanding that. What have you currently learned about horticulture or gardening? Ooh, the cool new thing I learned was recently when I heard Larry Weiner speak. He's Larry Weiner uh, Landscape Associates, I think. They're based in Pennsylvania. He does a lot of ecological plantings, he would call them. There's some cool principles he talked about where there are generalist plants and specialist plants. There are people who are in botany and plant conservation who are rating those on a scale of that. What was really cool is he talked about those generalist or plants that can grow in lots of different environments. They can grow kind of anywhere. Then you get specialist plants who really need exquisitely, you know, perfect conditions. By thinking about plants in that way, thinking about them on that dimension of being a generalist versus a specialist helps you understand how to use them. Looking around in my garden and in my yard and figuring out why did this plant not work or work, often it has to do with how that plant does across a range of conditions. So it's just a cool way of thinking about it. Technical term that gets used is the coefficients of conservatism. And the ratings out there, they're coming from the conservation world. I really want to dig into that and learn more about it because I think as a gardener, it'll really help me understand how to put plants together, which gets at that question earlier about those zone five plantings that we're envying. I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. A mess that brings me a lot of joy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it gets to the imperfection of things. Tell us about your garden. I garden on a quarter acre in an urban setting, an old neighborhood under willow oaks, some other established trees. I've got a lot of areas where I've tried to practice what I preach. I've got grasses and sedges as underplantings or ground cover layers. I've got a lot of native plants because I really love exploring and understanding native plants. It's what I like to plant just by default if I can. Because I garden in an established area, I have a lot of bullies. I've got English ivy, privet, honeysuckle, and all those awful things that we're all fighting. Finding a balance of that has been the real struggle for me. I look for stuff that's relatively no maintenance, but gets you bang for the buck, if you will. My garden over time has become more and more shaded. That's been one of my biggest challenges. I've got areas I planted for sun. Being here 22 years now. It was a rude awakening to realize that I have to become more of a shade gardener. That's where sedges have kind of saved my bacon and has been fun to really experiment with those. What did you learn from your garden last year that you're applying this year? Last year, my garden, I learned that I shouldn't try to grow vegetables. I have an area that, as aforementioned, has become shadier. I don't have a lot of full sun. I've learned that the trade-off for vegetables for me is not worth it because I'm not a gardener who is going to treat a lot of disease issues. I tend to go with sort of organic methods, and I'm not willing to put in the work it takes to grow vegetables in a way that is going to give me a lot of yield. I've converted to herbs. I've converted to plants that don't require nearly as much work, and I frequent the farmer's market and my own herb garden. What are your future plans for your garden? I'm going to try a cool technique that comes out of some of those Zone 5 gardens and from Europe. I'm going to try a gravel garden. And maybe not exactly technically a gravel garden. I'm going to try using expanded shale like permatil, a mix of that in really lean soils in a raised bed, and try to grow some of these perennials that are really drought tolerant that just really fail in the southeast with our humidity. They love heat, but they have disease trouble or they play soils. I'm going to create a new bed and do some experimentation with some of the grasses and sedges. I'm going to try to do a layered garden and see if I can make it work with a different medium in a very small space. What's your favorite plant this week? This week, it's little blue stem. Schizocarium scoparium or schizacrium or however you want to pronounce it. It is starting to get fall colors. It's starting to bloom. I say fall. We're not there yet. But the colors are changing. 
That's what I love about Little Blue Stem. I love the blue foliage and then it's got basal foliage and then tall bloomscapes that are starting to have these beautiful little sparkly, I call them sparkly because they catch the light. Inflorescences on them. The colors are changing. I mean, week to week they're changing. It's just going to be so fabulous when fall comes and it just signals cooler weather for me. That's what's the favorite right now. Shannon, tell us about your new horticultural adventures. I'm very excited about this. I've just recently joined the team at Izell Native Plants. This is a business that's based online. We consolidate inventories from growers. Their plants come available directly to the end consumer. For example, people who don't necessarily have a way to buy wholesale or not in the trade can now get plants that they wouldn't have been able to access otherwise. For example, some of the sedges we've talked about, they're kind of hard to find in garden centers or nurseries unless they're specialty nurseries. Izell gives people access to those wholesale-only growers. They can order online and then have them shipped to them. What I'm most excited about is my role will be to expand their education and outreach efforts. I get to basically help learn more about native plants, write about those, write content for the website, learn more about those native plants and help share that information and do lots more talks about them. I'm really excited it's going to expand my plant palette. What I really love, when I go talk about these plants, there's a way for folks to get them directly. That's always been a source of frustration for me, and I know for folks who get excited about the plants we share. So it's like a garden center online for native plants. That's a good analogy. Yes, exactly. It's acting as the go-between between wholesale businesses and a homeowner or a garden enthusiast someone who is not able to buy directly from those wholesale nurseries. It's a really nice group of nurseries that are doing native plants. That's the goal is to get more of those out there because a lot of them just aren't easily available. And this is a way to get it. Often too, when you're getting directly from the wholesale grower, you can get access to smaller sizes, the plugs and things where when you're doing sedges, the lawn alternative or covering a big area, Those smaller sizes are really a cost-efficient way to do that and horticulturally make a lot of sense. How about any final thoughts? I would encourage people to try grasses in different ways. Folks get discouraged because they don't know how to use them. Talked about some very specific ways to try that ground cover layer that really helps you with weeding and cuts down on mulch or is great for shade. Try it in a small space and see how it works for you. Grasses just offer so many opportunities to have a rich, layered, interesting garden that I would encourage them to try something new. Shannon, tell us how people may connect with you. I'd start with Izell Native Plants website. That address is izellplants.com. That's I-Z-E-L-P-L-A-N-T-S.com. They can contact me directly at my email, Shannon at izelplants.com. That's S-H-A-N-N-O-N at I-Z-E-L-P-L-A-N-T-S dot com. This has been Episode 76, Growing and Understanding Grasses and Sedges with Shannon Curry. Thank you, Shannon. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.